0: democracy, bridging facts, and norms. So I'm Michael Neblo. I'm an associate professor in the political science department at Ohio State University and have a courtesy appointment in the philosophy department as well. Um, I do my work on... um, democratic theory, deliberative democracy, broadly understood, um, and, and both its empirical and theoretical um, manifestations. Um, so I, I really bridge that. That's partly related to my background. My undergraduate degrees were in, in philosophy and st- statistics. I say statistics, it had a different name. but um, uh, So I've for a long time uh, been trying to bridge uh, the, the normative, theoretical, and um um, empirical sides of, this, of, of these questions surrounding uh, the proper functioning of democracy.
1: Why did you feel this urge to bridge them? Because sometimes it can feel like it's two different fields of study and two different specializations, so why did you feel they should be uh, linked?
0: Well, um, I mean there's, the, there, there's a number of reasons. Um, you know, One is that I think um, empirical political science gains Vital life, so to speak, um, from being organized around the categories of normative political uh, political theory, um, and that oftentimes, um, if the if the disconnection between them is too extensive, um, that we get empirical results that um, don't speak to vital questions um, in in democratic life and in normative political theory. On the flip side, um, political theorists are sometimes apt to uh, you know, do armchair social, social science and, and and rely on premises um, in their arguments, um, uh, their normative arguments, and especially policy prescriptions and uh, uh, you know suggestions uh, for practice that aren't informed by our best understanding of how the political world works. Um, so I think that both enterprises are just done better uh, when they're done in proximity to each other, and moreover. I just don 't see the contradiction um, that uh, if we look at the founders of modern social science i 'm not just going back to Aristotle. the people who usually defend this sort of combination take a very um, n- not a modern scientific but they but 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 a uh, a more um, uh, so i 'm thinking of of Leo Strauss and some of his followers and people um, in a more uh, in a traditional in those lines where They say, yeah, the the, the political theory and social science are compatible, um, but they are thinking pre-modern social science. But if we look at the founders of modern social science, let's say... um, Uh, Adam Smith, right? He wrote The Theory of Moral Sentiments, a seminal work in moral philosophy, and he wrote The Wealth of Nations, which effectively founded modern um, economics, um, and subscribed to a theory called the unity of the moral sciences, and saw not only no contradiction between pursuing both of these, but as I said before didn 't think that they could be pursued very well um, separately, uh, and so I think I feel like i 'm just going back to a tradition where that wasn 't controversial, and nobody really ever explained why it should be particularly controversial
1: and then how how would you relate them? How would you put them together? would you say one should start from a very deep um, theoretical analysis before starting any empirical study or that it could be another bottom-up or more relational link between empirical analysis and theoretical
0: uh, inquiry? Yeah. yeah, no, that's a good question. I mean, in, in the bigger picture, it's got to be an ongoing d- dialogue where there's no first and then, uh, uh, but, but a continuous uh, mutual informing of each other uh, um, back and forth. I do think, actually, before one starts a major um, empirical pro- project, one should attend um, uh, to the normative categories carefully, and and there should be work between theorists and and empirically oriented um, scholars. But of course, um, before you know, making a policy prescription or thinking through um, uh, what justice requires in a in a world world that's not um, uh, that's characterized by, say, moderate scarcity this is a term from John Rawls. Um, uh, that we need to have an understanding uh, of what the best modern social science tells us about the factual premises, um, understanding that. The problem is that there's often often not an alignment between the categories that allows them to speak fluently to each other. Um, and so in, in one sense, what I've been trying to do in my career is... Um, Act as a translator um, and help the two sides that often have time uh, trouble communicating uh, to be able to speak more fluently to each other. in cases where uh, the the bridge is too far, the, the the language gap is too large, then to literally function uh, or almost literally uh, function as a translator. Um, yeah.
1: Yeah. So, so you still have the feeling that today they are not communicating enough and. I'm wondering, as a researcher in your career, how how was it to be to have these two different backgrounds and these two different approaches to similar topic as your colleagues? But how is it received actually to have these two yeah. different? Uh...
0: Well, so I would say, yeah, there's not enough communication, or it's, it's not uh, where it could be. That said, I actually mm. think things have improved, um, and in my um, more specialized um, domain of empirical deliberative studies, I actually think that the communication is. Um, you know, better than anywhere I know of. Uh, in, in that um, normative theorists have been genuinely open um, and engaged with um, empirical social scientists. And the empirical social scientists, many of them have you know done the hard work of trying to read Habermas, let's say, um, which is not a trivial undertaking if you're not trained in political theory. And I know, I, I know a reading group um, of people, this is behavioral social scientists at the University of Michigan, um, who did a reading group on this. And so... Um, Of course it could be better, but in in my little corner of the academic world, I actually think the improvement has been quite substantial um, over the last decade basically, um, that there's serious engagement. And my hope is that perhaps that is a model um, for other domains of political theory or political science um, being able to communicate with each other. And I have in mind here, for example, democratization studies um, or people interested in, in electoral systems um, interacting with uh, people who study formal the formal properties of electoral systems and incentives and aggregation mechanisms, social choice theory, game theory, things along those lines. Um, uh, and, uh, yeah, that, that's that's where... So I hope that it diffuses out um, from uh, deliberate, deliberative studies where I think this is at its most vital um, and, and best functioning into other uh, potential relationships between empirical and, and normative philosophical uh, analysis.
1: Maybe I would have a more... Um... To the ground question, oh, yeah. which is which is when we're doing that kind of double approach, um, to what extent should we compromise on the ideals uh, when we're trying to assess an empirical case
0: yeah.
1: that is in real existing democracies? And on the other side, to what extent should theory be closer to reality or, or, or should limit its potential to become totally abstract and to not relate to what's actually happening anymore?
0: Yeah. Well... So I think there's two questions here, right? Um, I'm not sure it's the best way to frame it as compromising one's ideals, right? Um, So I have no problem, for example, with Rawls um, setting up his theory at a very abstract level and not doing near-ideal theory. Um, But for his ideal theory, he had to take into account certain things. For example... um, the, the sort of future persistence of moderate scarcity that's an empirical premise um, and uh, and for example um, developmental theories would be relevant to how we assess the difference principle you know the principle that benefits are to be organized such that they redound or inequalities are to be organized such that they redound to the benefit of the least well off well how do we think of that in in intertemporal terms and in investments in the poor and, and also, just the fact of reasonable pluralism this is an historical fact um, and uh, it 's an enormously important one I think he 's right i don't I, but i don 't understand why normative political philosophy um, shouldn't be informed by um, the less secure and less grand um, findings of, of modern social science and it, it's a separate issue as to um, how we analyze non-ideal theory as we get further further down. I suspect at that point we're going to have to include more recent and more concrete studies rather than large um, stylized facts um, like the fact of re- reasonable pluralism being a function of the history of the wars, wars of religion, right? So, that's, But that's empirical, right? It's an empirical question about the development of Western civilization um, and... I think Rawls is right on that, and he's right to incorporate it into that. And as we move from uh, ideal or near ideal theory to um, uh, non-ideal theory, I think we have to incorporate more localized facts.
1: So, not a language of compromise. That's that's important.
0: <laughs> it's a it's a it's a language of appropriateness of the kind of knowledge um, to the problem. Uh, at hand, right? And Rawls doesn't need to know. He can just say that the people behind the veil of ignorance have access to the findings uh, of all the best modern social science in, in history and history uh, and such without having to specify that, right? So, uh, and, and I think that there's value in doing that level of work, right? Then if we try to take it down um, uh, to another level and say, talk about um, how the difference principle is supposed to be initiated or in, implemented in the context of, um, you know, a non-ideal world, then we need to know things about, you know, dynamic growth and economics, et cetera, et cetera. It has to get more specific. So it, it's not compromise exactly so much as appropriate sorting of the kinds of normative arguments and the empirical premises that they rely upon, they need to make sense of themselves.
1: Yeah, that's a pretty strong debate in deliberative theories of democracy, because you have this ideal of deliberation, which was there for a really long time, and now would you also say that the the deliberative theorists are trying to make maybe an ideal that would be more appropriate to judge what is happening now in real existing democracies and to um, try to evaluate that kind of debate that is taking place?
0: Yeah. Well, this I have strong views on and I've written about. (laughs) Um, Similarly, I think that that debate has been um, set up somewhat the wrong way Um, and that the distance, the, the, the purported distance between... Um, some ideal and reality is not to the point. The function of the ideal um, isn't to approximate it; um, it's to orient ourselves uh, in uh, in in logical space. So, you know. For example, I'd, I usually use a baseball example, but I'll try to try to use a uh, you know maybe a basketball example, something a little bit more uh, um, neutral with respect to you know not, not show my American colors so flagrantly. Um, uh, you know the shooting percentages, right? Well, the best shooting percentage you could have is 100 percent, right? Well, no basketball player even remotely approximates a shooting percentage of 100 percent. Now, does that, does it follow from that? And they never will, right? Does it follow from that that we should abandon um, shooting percentage as our normative standard and just say percentage of shots that hit the rim? No, I mean, that would be foolish because it would look, be less validly tracking what we care about, which is the the offensive productivity of the player. Right um, and so similarly, I think that the distance between reality and the ideal is is simply beyond the point and it would be foolish and and less intellectually valid to lower our standards so to speak um, and change them that would be akin to saying hit the rim percentage um, uh, and and that, that so so I do have strong views. I'm very much against this, um, let's, let's lower the standards or change the standards. No, the, the standards aren't there because we think that we can um, uh, get very, very close to them. It's to help us understand what's good or bad or better or good enough.
1: So then I will propose your question on the standards for political researchers, on mm-hmm. democracy especially. Mm-hmm. What are their responsibilities towards the real existing society when, for example, you're an empirical social scientist and you say that uh, democracy is good, a good one, or a mm-hmm. bad functioning one? Mm-hmm. You have, you become part of the debate about yeah. what the quality of democracy. And same thing when you're a political theorist and you set some standards that will fit or not fit a certain society. And as such, what kind of responsibility do you have as a political scientist?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I haven't thought this through entirely but I think it would run something like this. If you're invoking your authority um or, or when I say authority of course it's not literally institutional authority but if you're invoking the social status that's conferred upon intellectuals as either scientists or theorists then I think you incur special special burdens but but before I go into those the first thing to note is that I think um if we're just functioning as citizens, that we're allowed to function like any other citizen, uh, and, to, and to pursue activism, or um, you know, press political points or any other sorts of thing, um, the same way any other citizen would. But if we're specifically acting in our role as political theorists or political scientists, and are relying on the social um, benefit or, or, or energy that is a, a, associated with those rules, then I think we um, have new obligations that are upon us. Now, my own view, and this is even true of scientists, is that that doesn't mean that we can't be activists of a certain sort, or that we can't advocate in a certain way. But I think we're constrained in the way that we advocate, and specifically, we don't advocate in the way that a lawyer advocate, advocates, which is just try to win. Um, that we can't just pick a side and press it and use all the tools of our scientific and, uh, and theoretical um, sort of uh, knowledge or practice. It's really just a matter of practice advantage um, to to bully um, or otherwise overwhelm fellow citizens who don't have the leisure uh, or the, the luxury of, of having the 40, 50 hours a week that they work um, be thinking about these uh, these sorts of things. And that we have to act as um, in a cooperative mode, a cooperative intellectual mode. So we can have our beliefs rooted in our research and press those, but that we have a special obligation to reconstruct counter-arguments, let's say, for other people in as strong a f- form as we can. That's what I mean by saying we can't act like lawyers and think that our obligation is just to win, um, because I think I, I think of that as abusing um, the, the special status that's associated with that and crossing the line between um, a scientist who's who's deploying specialized scientific knowledge and whose judgment has been tutored by years of research on relevant questions um, and just substituting one's will over another, which I think is illegitimate, especially for democracy.
1: If I may ask a last one. (laughs) Because yesterday we had this very interesting discussion about experimental political science. And you brought into light some specific criteria that you think uh, make certain experiments that might have an influence in real politics, mm-hmm. uh, acceptable or not uh, yeah, acceptable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Could you maybe just remind us which which one of these yes. principles? Yeah,
0: well, I, I wish I had the... I worked this out, and it's very important for me to, to make this distinction, because, of course, political scientists have come under fire for this recently. Um, I think one of the main principles is the informed consent of everybody involved. Um, uh, and, and I mean informed consent in, in, in a broad sense here, right? Um, another one... Uh, is that it's been reviewed uh, ethically by some other uh, entity that that, uh, when we're the ones who make the decisions about what's uh, acceptable research uh, we have uh, even if we're doing our very best to be honest about it there's a tendency to be biased in in favor of one's own um, ideas so subjecting uh, oneself to to criticism by others um, in in an institutionally organized way that uh, the the scientists not have some sort of pecuniary or you know strong interest in the outcomes and uh, if it's involving elected officials that it's um, public officials acting in their public role and that in expectation, there's uh, a potential benefit. And that potential benefit, again, has to be judged not just by the researchers themselves, but also whatever review institution is governing them. And preferably that would be part of the informed consent of the participants, both the elites and non-elites. If all of those conditions are met, Um, I think that it's generally okay um, to do research that might even influence real political outcomes because it's in the service of trying to improve um, uh, democratic performance, not merely um, treating fellow democratic citizens as um, rats in a maze. Thank you
1: very much.
0: You're very (laughs) welcome.
1: Brought to you by democracynet.eu